Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back. George Norrie with you. Chad Lewis with us. Seemed destined to write about lumberjack legends and lore. Born and raised in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, a town nicknamed Sawdust City. Why? Because of all the sawmills that once littered all the riverbanks. As a grade schooler, Chad took school field trips to the local Paul Bunyan Logging Camp Museum to learn about the town's logging history. After high school, he received his bachelor's and master's degrees from the University of Wisconsin-Stout. He's an accomplished author. His latest work, Lumberjack Creatures of the North Woods. Chad, welcome back. Greetings from the North Woods of Wisconsin, George. And I love Wisconsin, by the way. What a great state, isn't it? I love those Midwestern-type states. Yes. If people were not born in the Midwest, they love coming here. They love the people, the land, the culture. You just can't beat it. By the way, the graphics on your cover of Lumberjack, fantastic. Who did that? Uh, A friend of mine, Rick Fisk, who's done other covers on more of my supernatural or paranormal theme books, but I really wanted it to showcase that fun, whimsical Northwoods adventure that people think of when they think of heading up north. And I got a kick out of your inscription to me, George, stay out of the Northwoods. Well, a lot of the old lumberjacks would agree with that. They would tell you, stay out no matter what. Let's talk. Let's set the stage for the logging industry, first of all. Is it still a big industry, or has it slowed down? Well, it's nowhere near where it was in its heyday in the mid-1800s, when thousands of men up in the Northwoods would leave every winter and go to the bunkhouse and leave their families, their farms, everything behind, and basically spend several months in the bunkhouse cutting wood during the season to make enough money to save the family farm or maybe have a heyday at one of the local river towns where they would spend their money as fast as they made it. But thousands, tens of thousands of these men, starting, of course, in Vermont and Maine and then moving west to the Midwest with the big woods of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. For the money of those days, were they making good cash? They were, especially if they were experienced. And the lumber industry was an equal opportunity employer. No matter your religion, your skin color, where you came from, the language you spoke, if you could do the job of the person next to you, you would get the same pay as that person got, which is why we have uh, so many African-American lumberjacks, Native American lumberjacks. but. Of course, the iconic image of the lumberjack is the tall, strapping, flannel-wearing Caucasian. Even though there were so many people from other countries in the lumber camps, the old joke was that at night you could hear snoring in 10 different languages. How did Paul Bunyan become such an institution? Well, that's more of a modern thing. In the early days, Paul Bunyan was talked about for decades before um, anyone actually made it into the, the, the mainstream, if you will. Lumberjacks talked about Paul Bunyan, but they talked about him in ways that when researchers came, folklorists and sociologists came, what they found is that so many of the stories were racist, sexist, and very sexual, where 
they were afraid to print it because they would be fined uh, by uh, companies because it wasn't proper. So right. many of the early Paul Bunyan stories were not recorded. Most of what we know of the Paul Bunyan legends came later, uh, late 1800s, and then in print in the early 1900s. But Paul Bunyan was the most infamous lumberjack of all time. And every lumber camp would tell stories of how they worked with Paul and Babe in the the big camp, and it was their favorite time. In those early days, Chad, of course, they didn't have gas-powered saws or anything like that. What did they use? Axes and handsaws? How did they get these trees down? Exactly. It was the most dangerous job you could have in America. Imagine 100-foot trees weighing, you know, huge weight, saws, flying axes. So they would work brutal hours. They would work from what they called can't see to can't see. They'd be up and in the woods before sun came up, and they wouldn't finish until it was dark. So they would work all day long. And they were, it was so dangerous, oh obviously. God. And many of them passed away. They met their end at the lumber camp. I wonder how many people got killed by falling trees and things like that. And these were strong, sturdy, hardy men. If you got injured out in the woods, what they would usually do is plug the cut with some tobacco and try to stitch you up when you came back to camp. And if they couldn't, they would send you to a local hospital. But for the most part, you were expected to work unless you were missing a limb or something of that severity. So um, hundreds died every year, not only in the woods with falling trees and when they would stack these huge piles of wood to be hauled down to the rivers by the horses and oxen, but also the men that had to ride the rivers to get these logs to the lumber industry. They were drowned quite often, and many times uh, their real name might not even be known. They would just hang their boots on a tree as a memorial for the drowned lumberjack. Or they'd get crushed between two logs or something. Yes, and again, uh, oftentimes there was no support for the family. The family might not even hear. You might be at a lumber camp, and you might be known as Madison Bill. And they might not even know your real name or where you're from. So there was no payment sent to a family for those who met their watery graves. When they got together after they worked and probably before they passed out, did they tell tall tales? This was their main source of entertainment. Imagine 14-hour day, you're done, you go back to the bunkhouse, which was set up almost like dorm rooms where it would be a long building and people would have a little cot, and there'd be maybe 30, 40 men in this room. The only uh, exit being, of course, the one door and the stove um, for it to exit. So you can imagine the smell of the wet wool, the tobacco, the pipe smoke, and the men who haven't bathed in weeks. And that was their main form of entertainment. They would sit around at night, and tell tall tales and spin yarns and, and drink, tell. probably I guess, right? Well, a lot of the a lot of the lumber camps, uh, probably for good reason, did not allow liquor in the lumber camps. So a lot of these men would go three, four months without a drink, which is one of the reasons why when they got out with their money in the spring, they headed to the nearest river town that were all too happy to take their money from them. 
Amazing. So the stories that they would tell, were they some supernatural? Yes. And in amongst these lumberjack creatures, they would tell stories of what we would consider more traditional supernatural legends. Bigfoot, uh, spook lights, willow of the wisp, traditional ghost stories, witches, and the like. And of course, they didn't call it Bigfoot back then. Uh, but there were a lot of wild man or wild men stories of the lumber camps that would terrify these men. And again, these were men you wouldn't think would get spooked by anything. But I have many newspaper accounts of lumberjacks finding big footprints in the snow or the mud and being afraid that something uh, supernatural was in the area. And I am sure that with some of these tall tales... Uh, they tried to outdo each other, didn't they? That was a competition. And the stories didn't take place like they do here with us in modern times. It would start with somebody telling a story, maybe the time they worked with Paul Bunyan up on the Onion River. And they would start telling the story, and maybe someone would jump in and say, you're not doing it right, this is what really happened, I was there. And they'd try to one-up one another, and... The stories were never told the same way twice. They were always morphing, evolving. And these were storytellers of great talent. They could keep the new greenhorns, the rookies, the young lumberjacks, on the edge of their bunks because they couldn't believe that this stuff was actually real. Because remember, back then, the big woods seemed anything was possible. Right that they were never-ending. It could be anything lurking in those woods. And the many of these creatures that they talked about were pretty violent, weren't they? They were. They were meant, if they happened in regular society, you would think that they were cautionary tales. Don't go down to the river. There's a sea serpent inhabiting it. It's going to bite stay you. Yeah. yeah, stay away. You're going to drown. But they had no choice but to go into the woods. So when they talked about these creatures being responsible for death and dismemberment and misfortune of lumberjacks, it wasn't done as a cautionary tale. It was done to frighten people. Interesting take. How did you decide to key in on lumberjack creature stories? Growing up in the Midwest, I had always heard legends of these creatures. People would uh, use them as their town mascot or marketing tools. And it wasn't until I was doing more traditional paranormal or supernatural when, believe it or not, people would contact me and say, how do I go about finding the hodag? I'm really interested in it, and I have no idea where to start. And they were asking about all these lumberjack creatures, which I just assumed everybody took with a little wink and a nudge. Mm Mm-hmm. But yet, so many people claimed that they were still around, and not only that, they wanted to encounter them. So nothing had been done for many, many decades on these lumberjack creatures. So I thought they needed a a fresh overview and more of a a historical account of their their origins rather than just the, the big yarns and the tall tales. Most of the creatures they talked about were pretty dangerous, weren't they? Yes, they could not only harm you, but often they had a vendetta against humans. And the reason for that is our encroachment in the woods. 
lot of the lumber industry during this time was not like it is today. They weren't replanting. They weren't selective in their uh, tree selection. They were clear-cutting everything. They go in and wipe a forest off the planet. And, of course, that was the uh, impetus for why these creatures were upset. We were coming into their area. We were taking their land. So oftentimes they would look to uh, harm the lumberjacks. For instance, there's one called the agro pelter. It was a, a baboon-looking creature that would sit up in the top of hollowed trees holding a huge log in its hand, making it look like it was just another limb of the tree. And when unsuspecting hikers or lumberjacks would come walking by with their eyes on the ground making sure they don't trip and fall, the agro pelter would smash them with these logs, Jeez. and they would never return to the lumber camp. Wow. He'd kill them. Yeah, exactly. Kill them. And in some instances, the animals not only killed them, but consumed them. There was this whirling wimpus creature, which was this big gorilla-looking creature that could spin so fast it would almost disappear with its long arms. And it would hit these lumberjacks and turn them into like a, a mucus. And then it would drink it like a soup. Very gruesome, very gory things, not kid-friendly of the time. Hey, Chad, how many of these stories were myths and how many do you think were real? Great question. Um, well, as of today, researchers of the era had collected over 100 of these legends of creatures, different creatures that were said to lurk in the Northwoods. And many of them are obviously 100% fictional. Uh, the hoop snake, a snake that can bite its own tail, turning into a hoop and then chase you down a hill. Is that, is that what I see on the cover? Yes, the hoop snake uh, has a venomous tail, but it could move as a hoop going down a hill, reaching speeds of 100 miles per hour, and then smash that stinger into you. So things like that obviously are not about, but people still have accounts of them. I have many newspaper accounts of people telling journalists that they encountered these hoop snakes. Um, but then the other creatures that seemed to fit more in, like I said, the Bigfoot or the sea serpent or the spook lights, these mysterious willow of the wisp that would appear, they seem to be happening still today. And they fall more into the category of cryptozoology or the general paranormal. Where did the jackalope come into in terms of it's not really a scary creature? Jackalope seems to be more one of the friendly creatures. And if Anyone's familiar with lumberjack creatures, they're probably familiar with the, the uh, jackalope. Uh, if you stop at any tourist gift shop or you go out west, you'll see uh, jackalope replicas on sale, and you can pick them up, and they're basically a rabbit-looking creature with antlers on them. And they started out as a, a fun thing where the cowboys sitting around the fire after a dusty day on the range would sing songs. And the lumberjacks uh, would also be sawing when they would hear the jackalope singing or harmonizing with them. And they were thought to be a harmless creature, fun, cuddly, very cool. They wouldn't hurt you like a lot of these other creatures would. And the um, lumberjacks and the cowboys would lure in these jackalopes with alcohol. 
whiskey specifically, it was said that you could trap them and train them if you had enough alcohol. How many different creatures did these lumberjacks create? We know of well over a hundred of these, and some are pretty obscure and some are site-specific. They might only happen in a lumber area in Maine or in Oregon. But many of these, well over a hundred of them, were known to roam the entire United States. And even though it's the book I did was based on the Northwoods, every state has a Northwoods, whether you're in the Northwoods of Florida, which is not really a Northwoods for those of us up here, but it is for that state. And logging was done eventually in nearly every state uh, outside of like uh, uh, North Dakota because Paul Bunyan had already logged it. Is the, is the book based on myth or real stories? I think a bit of both. And I say that kind of with some hesitation because some of these creatures have modern sightings. People actually believe they've seen them. But for the most part, they're mythical creatures. They only existed, as far as we know, in the imagination of the lumberjacks who created them. But were they picking up and telling real stories along with some of these yarns? Because when you read some of these accounts, they match up pretty closely with modern-day accounts of other cryptids that people are encountering. So I think part of the fun and also part of the difficulty is sorting fact from fiction. When you have these lumberjacks who are known for telling yarns, um, how do you know when they were getting serious and telling real stories? Were some of these stories based on what do you think might have been fact as opposed to fiction, and then they just embellished it a little bit? I think so, and the jackalope would be another instance of that, another great example of rabbits having a, a virus that causes a tumor-like growth that to the layperson looks like horns or antlers growing out of their head. And many believe that was the origin. People would see these rabbits infected with this disease. And that was this, the impetus for the jackalope. So a lot of these creatures were based on things that would happen. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.